So hey guys, welcome back. Uh, we have another podcast for you. And uh, this man, Tom Betts, and I have been following each other off and on for the last couple of years. And his name would pop up in, in comments or questions. And I was like, God, who, like, who is this guy? And, and that's honestly, God, what happened? I'm like, who is this guy? And I tap on his name and holy cow, it's like opening like a jack in the box. Like all this stuff came out. And Tom, I think, is probably, uh, and he'll, he'll probably say I'm wrong, but Tom is really at the forefront of spaghetti westerns and, and their history. And knowing about them, you can find uh, uh, about Tom, and this is going to be really hard to spell, so I'm going to say it slowly. It's Western, W-E-S-T-E-R-N-S-A-L-L-I-T-A-L-I-A-N-A dot blogspot dot com just like it sounds blog b l o g s p o t dot com blogspot dot com and that's where we're gonna find out what Tom has got going on before we get to Tom of course we want to thank our friends over at the Tombstone Epitaph Arizona's longest running newspaper uh, go to tombstoneepitaph dot com and subscribe and get it delivered right to your door. They're going to love you for it. Mark and Eric are doing a phenomenal job getting out Arizona's longest-running newspaper delivered about Western history right to your door. I also want to thank my second family at Wild West History Association. You can become a member at wildwesthistory.org. Uh, it's about 75 bucks a year. Gets you four journals, and it gets you the ability to connect with researchers and writers like I've been telling you, I, I'm just a guy who does podcasts, but if it wasn't for the Wild West History Association, I would, would have never connected with John Bosnecker or Roy B. Young or Bob Bose Bell or, I mean, it just goes on and on or, um, <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm losing it now. Mark Lee Gardner, uh, like we had on a recent podcast, like all these people, Garner Polinsky, all these people are in the Wild West History Association. And so I urge you to join at wildwesthistory.org. So like I said earlier, uh, Tom Betts is on the phone. We're going to talk about his life. Um, he considers himself, well, actually, I consider himself a spaghettiologist. Um, he uh runs a blog that is all about spaghetti westerns. We're going to talk about the blog and we're going to talk about um his background. I it it I read about you that you came from Toledo, Ohio. You now live in Southern California. How did a guy come from Toledo, Ohio to Southern California? Just like how did you get here besides moving? I would assume it's a job. What did you do for a living? All that stuff. Well, I was in high school. My last year of high school, my father worked for the Coca-Cola company. Ooh. He was a assistant plant manager in Toledo. He worked there since he was 18 years old because they lived behind the plant loading trucks. And then he came back after World War II. He was a captain and a B-17 bomber pilot during World War II. And when he came back, uh, he had married my mother before he went into the service, came back. I was born. He went back to work for the Coca-Cola company, and he worked there until he was 40 years old. Uh, believe it or not, the Coca-Cola company had no retirement package. So when he re would reach retirement, he would have had Social Security only. So he said, I've got to do something other than that. So... He went to work for a company called Squirt. Uh, they make a grapefruit drink. And at yep. that time, they were basically only used as a, in bars. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't uh, at the market or whatever. So he went into that, became a, a territory manager for a couple of years. And they wanted to get into uh, marketing into the uh, soft drink business out of vending machines and premix. And my dad knew all about that. So they promoted him to... Uh, VP of that, and that they were stationed in Van Nuys, California. So we moved to California my last year of high school. I went to college and high school out here. I went to uh, 
Pierce Junior College and got an AA degree in architectural drafting. And then I transferred to Cal State Northridge and got a BA in history. And uh, that's how I got to California. But you've had some jobs since. Are you allowed to talk about the jobs? Oh, sure. You had some jobs um, that were, were pretty, looked like with, with Hubble. Um, yeah, I, well, I started and, as a paper boy when I was 13. When I came to California, I got a job because the guy across the street from us, his father ran a, a chain of restaurants, so I took a job as a busboy, and then I became a cook uh, during college years, and I joined a company called Vandy Camps hmm. in Los Angeles, which is known for the bakery, but they also had restaurants, and became a... Uh, assistant manager and relief manager there for a few years. Um, I quit that company to go to work for a um, company that made, uh, it was a hardware company, and uh, they used to make uh, tables, closets, all that kind of stuff. Went on vacation for a couple of weeks, came back, and they went basically out of business, so I didn't have a job. So I got a job in the electrical industry because of my architectural drafting background for a company called Graybar. They're a national company. Yep. Worked there for a couple of years, and then I joined Hubble, basically because I had friends that worked there, and they talked me into going to work there. I worked for Hubble for 30 years and uh, retired, oh, 10 years ago? Yeah, retired early. So that's well, how I got, got to work for Hubble as an outside salesman. Mm. So I was all over Southern California. Uh, I didn't go to the San Fernando Valley, but... Or Long Beach, but I had L.A. Uh, I had most of my time was in Orange County, but I also covered Riverside, San Bernardino. Uh, that's where I got involved some, with some of the ERP uh, history there. And up in this, to uh, Santa Barbara, all the way to San Luis Obispo for a first period of time. So I totally get the Vandy Camp because I grew up in, Tom and I have talked, I grew up miles, just a few couple of miles from where he lives. And... I remember Vandy Camp, and I remember Squirt mm-hmm. because my dad, my my grandparents would keep Squirt in bottles, and uh-huh. and they would, you know, mix vodka tonics or vodka squirt, exactly, or, you know, whatever. Yep. And but mixer, yep. But they would keep bottles, and when I would come and visit, and they lived, they lived in an area that's very, it's called Silverado Canyon, mm-hmm. in Orange County. And they lived in an area, and they had a basement, and their basement was cold, and they could put the sodas down <laughs> in the basement and keep them ice cold all summer. And I would go to their house, and they would have squirt. I also, so I was going to ask you, because Dad was with Coke for so long, is it Coke or Pepsi in your house? Or, or neither? Coke. He wouldn't allow Pepsi in the house. Look, good for you, because I'm and a so Coke I ne- guy. Yeah, I never, I never developed a taste for Pepsi. Good, because I'm, as I say, <laughs> if you were like, yeah, I'm all Pepsi, looks like this interview is over. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Dude, that's a great story. So in the middle of all of this going on, you you mentioned, you because of your travels, that you got into Western history. Explain that, because that's kind of how I got into it, was through travels. Yeah, yeah. My dad was a big history fanatic, and working for the Coca-Cola company, he couldn't take vacation until after Labor Day, uh, because summer was the peak period for Coca-Cola. And so he and my mom would always go out west, and they'd go to Tombstone and Denver and all kinds of places like that, and come back with pictures. And then, of course, during the fifties, we—that's all we watched on TV with the were the TV westerns. And he loved Gunsmoke and The uh, Adventures of uh, Wyatt Earp, mm-hmm. Bat Masterson, all that kind of stuff. I grew up because, of, you know, as a kid, uh, Gene Autry and Roy Rogers and uh, Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, that kind of stuff. And, uh, of course, he, he got into, read every book he could possibly come across. And my favorite, of course, at that time was the uh, Walter Noble Burns, uh, Billy the Kid and Wyatt Earp. So uh, I got involved in that basically uh, late late uh, grade school, early teen time. So coming out to California and being college age, I mean, that was a dream come true because now I could actually go and visit places that I had read about, you know, because they were still there and visit ghost towns and uh, go to Tombstone and places like that. Crazy. Mm-hmm. As, as you were moving through adulthood, though, 
you, well, I'm going to ask you because I don't know. Did mm-hmm. you become a fan of Spaghetti Westerns in the 60s and the origins of them? Mm-hmm. Or did that love of Spaghetti Westerns come after when you had more time, like you retired and stuff like that? Or have you been a fan since the very beginning? Uh, yes and no. Um, I went to see, being older, I went to see the premiere of Fistful of Dollars. And in those days, in 1966, even though it was made in 64, it didn't come to the States until 66 because Akira Kurosawa uh, sued Sergio Leone saying he copied Yojimbo and the story, uh, which he transferred into Fistful of Dollars. So there was a, a court case for a number of years and then it came to the States in 66. So I went to see it on opening night. And at those days, it premiered on Wednesdays, not Fridays. So in the middle of the week, I went to the theater. And I had heard the, the advertisements on the radio that this is the, you know, this is the most dangerous man who ever lived. Uh, this poncho belongs to so-and-so. This cigar, short cigar belongs to blah, blah, blah. He may be the most dangerous man who ever lived. And the ad campaign just drew me in, even though I'm thinking spaghetti western and Italian western. And I knew who Clint Eastwood was because of Rawhide, but Rawhide was on Fridays, and that was date night and basketball, football games. So I never really watched it until the winter during reruns. So I went basically to see it and to laugh because it also used to say, this is the first motion picture of its kind, it won't be the last. And when it started, the music just blew me away. And then when I saw him ride up to the uh, small house, what they called it, I went, oh, no, this is a Mexican Western because of the architecture. Well, where did the architecture of Mexico come from? Spain. Mm-hmm. So I watched it, and it got, kept getting better and better and better. And I said, wow, this is fantastic. And at the end of the theater, I said, this is one of these movies where you go out and tell your friends that you've got to go see this movie. So I turned around, and I counted the number of people in the theater. There were 12 people there, Mike. And so after that became a hit, they released the other two uh, Fist the Dollar movies for a few dollars more and The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly within the next year. Uh, so I went to see for a few dollars more, and there were about half the theater was filled on the Wednesday. And The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, was, it was standing room only when I went to see that. And so I got involved in the very beginning. And then I would see anything with Sergio Leone in it or Lee Van Cleef or Clint Eastwood. And then I saw a movie called Stranger in Town with Tony Anthony. And it was just the opposite. This was a little guy who was a back shooter, and uh, he would kill people from with a shotgun underneath the boardwalk, uh, shooting up through it instead of like Clint walking down the middle of a street and facing four guys, you know. And I figured, well, this is what a really Italian Western is all about. I figured Tony Anthony's real name was something like Antonio Antonini or something, you know even though that's his real name and he's an American. And it turned me off, so I didn't go to see any other spaghetti westerns until, unless it was, uh, like I said, Lee Van Cleef or Sergio Leone or Clint Eastwood. And then about 10 years later, 15 years later, in the late 70s, because of my job, I started going to a record store in in West Hollywood. And they had uh, all these Ennio Morricone LPs that I loved Ennio Morricone because of course he did the Dollars films. And they had a, a, a LP there called A Pistol for Ringo starring Montgomery Wood. And who in the heck is Montgomery Wood? Never heard of him. Well, the Italians and the Spaniards to make international films, they would uh, give all their actors American names to make them look like they were American productions to draw in the audience. And so I got involved again with the Spaghetti Westerns in like 1979, 1980. And by that time, the the ones that were made in the 60s were popping up on TV. But they were coming on at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, midnight. I would catch them on the Mexican station here in L.A., and so my wife used to, my ex-wife used to think I was crazy because I'd set the alarm for two in the morning and get up and watch some Rod Cameron spaghetti western that he was in just because I had heard about it and read about it but didn't know anything else about it, you know. So then I got back involved in that and I said, man, this is a, this is a genre that, uh, the American press just poo-pooed because they weren't American made. They were European made. 
And uh, a lot of American actors, the older guys, Guy Madison, Woody Strode, Telly Savalas, all those guys, went over and made Italian westerns. And then I found out they actually made like 600-plus European westerns anywhere, you know, in, in Italy, Spain, France, Germany, all over the place. And I said, man, this is a whole uh, genre of films that have been undiscovered. And but basically most of the people in in the United States know nothing about it. Well, so I put an ad in the company well, in a a newspaper. Go ahead. Wait a second. Because if, if, if I don't stop you, you're going to go so far <clears throat> that I'll end up reeling you back. Because yeah. I want to ask you about the history of the Spaghetti Western. Because what caused it? Like, I'm intrigued that American film, filmmakers... Did they do something to cause the Italians to say there's a demand for it? Or what was the initial reason for creating the Spaghetti Western, which wasn't called Spaghetti Western? Right. But but what was the purpose in, in pulling in an American like a Clint Eastwood or a, a Lee Van Cleaver or Henry Fonda or, like you said, Teddy Savalas or more into... And Charles Bronson and Jackie, yep. and, like, what was the purpose for well, them to let's, create let's go back these a little bit. The, the Italian films actually go back to <clears throat> silent days. I mean, when Buffalo Bill went over there, they would film it and show it in the theaters. And in Italy and Spain, they were, you know, they were 20, 30 years behind us. They didn't have TV, so everything that they saw, they went to the theaters. And during World War II, they got nothing. They got absolutely nothing because of the war. So when the war was over, all these films came back out from the 40s, and they went to the theaters. And there was a German series of films called Winnetou Films based on Carl May, or May, M-A-Y. And he was a author that copied James Fenimore Cooper and made his own uh, series of books. They were big hits like Mark Twain is here. They were big hits of books that the kids read in Germany. And he made a series of films, and they starred Pierre Brice, who was a French actor who played Winnetou, and they had an American scout, and it started with Lex Barker. And people knew Lex Barker from Tarzan over there, and then he was replaced, or at the same time, Stuart Granger came on the scene, and then Rod Cameron came on the scene to play these American scouts. Well, they were huge hits in Germany just because everybody wanted to go see movies based on the books that they read. So that led to Sergio Leone making a Western. And, of course, to draw in the fans, they had to bring in American stars because everybody knew who they were over there in Italy. And that's how they got the Americans to come over. And Fistful of Dollars was such a hit that everybody started copying over there in Italy. And that's basically... All big name directors made Italian westerns of some type, and that's how they they got the the whole genre going over there. Because I I was blown away in my research about you and the spaghetti western and the fact that it, the spaghetti westerns went all the way back to the eighteen nineties. Yeah, right. In mm -hmm. the earliest form of film, or film of that period it went all the way to the 1890s all the way through the early 1900s very early 1900s and they were doing incredible things by creating these westerns while the western history was still being written still being yeah exactly yeah those people are still alive exactly yeah so as it progresses and moves forward because what I've read is that the, the, the Spaghetti Western really had its heyday from about 1960 to a 64 to about 1978. Like that was the yep. Sergio Leone period. That was the yep. heyday, 14 years. And, and that was when it was got its biggest. And then, and, and, and forgive me because I, I don't know the names of them, but mm -hmm. obviously, Clint Eastwood was one of the biggest, but then Lee Van Cleef and then Eli Wallach. Like mm -hmm. I can't, I don't even remember the movie, but the three of they're they're standing in a circle and yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Good, bad, and the ugly. Like it's so good. How 
How did they entice the Americans? Was it money or was it, were they seeing that the spaghetti Westerns were taking off financially and then they said, we want to be a part of it? Because Clint Eastwood was known in that period in the 60s, but it really put Clint Eastwood on the map. Yeah, well, Clint Eastwood had a deal. His contract prevented him from making movies during the summer season of Rawhide. It said nothing about making a foreign film. So uh, that's an interesting story on Fistful of Dollars because Leone had a very small budget. He wanted to get Henry Fonda to play the lead. Couldn't afford Henry Fonda. He tried to get James Coburn. Couldn't get Coburn. Bronson turned him down. All these big-name actors couldn't turn him down, and someone suggested Clint Eastwood. And he saw Clint Eastwood, and he said, oh, I can make him into the man with no name. So he offered him $13,500 to come over, and Clint said, I recognize this story. It's Yojimbo. That's a great story. It would make a great Western. I'm going to take his offer because I get a trip to Spain and Italy, and I can make $15,000, and if it's a dead, no one's going to see it here in the States, you know. And they called it The Magnificent Stranger when it started. And they, all of a sudden, when it hit the market and was making a big name for itself in uh, Italy, and it was written up about it. Clint didn't recognize it because he didn't know it as Fistful of Dollars. He knew it as Magnificent Stranger. So when he finally realized that this was Fistful of Dollars, he goes, holy mackerel, this is a big hit. And it became an international hit when, when Kurosawa... Uh, sued Leone, uh, he won the case, and Sergio said, okay, this is what I'll do. I'll give you all the rights to Fistful of Dollars in Japan, Singapore, that, that whole part of the world. And he made more money on that than all of his films combined. That's how popular Fistful of Dollars was. So the money uh, was one thing. A lot of these actors were at the, had already peaked in their careers, Guy Madison, uh, Palance was still trying to make a name for himself, basically. So was Bronson. So they figured, I'm going to go over there and make a Western. It's going to become international and see if I can make, you know, start my career or start a, a, a re, get a re-going again or whatever. So money was one thing, but I think to get their names on the marquees again internationally was another reason. God, that's so good. I could listen to you talk for, for an hour. Yeah. Well, it. then the other thing is the music. I love the music. That's oh, what got great. me into it. Yeah. And the cinematography, like it wasn't, even though it was like a, I don't want to say low budget because I don't think that's true. Even though the budget was low, the mm -hmm. cinematography, the cam multiple camera angles, like it was a top production movie. Yeah. Yeah. The cinematographers, think of Italy as, as what? The size of, uh, New Mexico or Arizona basically stretched out. So all these, all these cameramen, the screenwriters, the composers, they were all like one big family. They all went from one film to another. It didn't make, matter if they were making a drama, a love story, a sci-fi, a sword and sandal film, whatever. Uh, they bounced from one film to another. So they had their pick of who they needed or wanted to to make uh, a, a spaghetti western. And they didn't. They weren't turned down. They said, "Sure, I'll do it." You know, six weeks or whatever. I, I can make a spaghetti western and do the cinematography on this. So yeah, they very creative. Everything was widescreen and Technicolor. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're great looking. When, when the popularity began to, like the financials. Like I'm sure Hollywood looked at the financials and said, uh, "Holy crap." We're, we're behind. Did Hollywood try to get on that bandwagon and then start to write Westerns, or did they leave it alone? Uh, no, they, they, they jumped on the bandwagon because, first of all, they could film over in Spain and Italy much cheaper than they could in the States. Um, so they would go over there and, and films like 100 Rifles, um, all kinds of American films that were made over there, uh, via rides, that kind of stuff they would use. And I call them co-productions, even though all the money came from Hollywood. Once they got to Italy or Spain, uh, a lot of supporting actors were Spanish or Italian. 
the crews were Spanish or Italian. They would use Italian composers uh, or big name American composers like Jerry Goldsmith, uh, Riz Ortolani, people like that. And then they started copying that style over here because when's the last time you've seen uh, American Western now, even today, where the hero is clean shaven? He's usually got a three-day growth of beard. Mm-hmm. Um, he's gruffy looking. All the bad guys are really rough looking. Where back in the Audie Murphy, uh, Randolph Scott days, they were all clean shaven. Uh, the towns were spick and span. There was no horse manure in the streets. The buildings were all painted, uh, very uh, clean, cleanliness, you know. And the spaghetti westerns made them rough and tough. And they copied that because of the anti-hero again, too. So all your Sylvester Stallone, Schwarzenegger heroes came out of spaghetti westerns. But did did they fail? Because I would assume when you try to copy a success, mm-hmm. did Hollywood fail at it? Uh, yeah, they, they could never copy the spaghetti westerns. They never got the fe- quite the feel for it. Uh, the directors in Italy and Spain, they loved westerns and that's what blew me away too because it took a long time for me to realize that they grew up on westerns from the theater back in the 30s and the and you know the ones that they saw that came back after the in the 50s that were basically made in the 40s they loved and knew who john ford was and all the american directors and they loved westerns that's why they made them not just because they were financially successful they loved the film genre itself where the americans were like, oh, okay. I mean, all the directors that we grew up with, they were past their, their prime in those days. Mm-hmm. In the 70s, they were old-timers. So the new crew, until you got to Quentin Tarantino and Rodriguez and some of those guys who grew up like you and I did on Spaghetti Westerns, they're the ones that have copied them in a different genre of their own and uh, have basically made films like Spaghetti Westerns. But the old directors never could get that. They couldn't get the uh, the toughness, the roughness. I think I mentioned to you before when I grew up on Roy Rogers and uh, Hopalong Casty and those, the outlaw, the bad guy, would try to steal some rancher's ranch. He'd drive off their cattle or horses. He'd burn the ranch down, kidnap the daughter, whatever. And the, his penalty basically was at the end was he would get smacked in the face a couple of times by Hoppy or Roy and sent off to jail. Where in the Spaghetti Westerns, the villain got exactly what he was dishing out the whole film. He got shot, he got tortured, just like he'd been dishing it out. He didn't get sent to jail, he usually got killed. And the Americans just never really got that, you know? Is, do you have a list of an, an internal list in your head. And this, for the Spaghetti Western listeners, they're going to be like, eyes oh, full of crap. Do you have an internal list like the top five? Or no, top I don't do that. You don't do that? I'm always asked about, do you give me your top 10, your top 20. And I I, I, I can't do that. I Because my, my tastes change over time. Oh. And in the beginning, when I was involved with some of the books, I hadn't seen all of them. I, like I said, there's 600 and some films. I maybe had seen 30 or 40 that were that came over here either at the theater or on video or DVD. So I just wouldn't do that. But I mean, all the Leones are in there. Uh, there's any, I would tell people that if you want to look at good spaghetti westerns, rent or see anything on YouTube that's directed by a Sergio. Sergio Leone, Sergio Carbucci, Sergio Solima. They make the top-rate spaghetti westerns, the top budgets with big stars, and you can sit through them. Uh, of, of the 600 and some that they made, it's typically a third of them are terrible, a third of them are okay, and a third of them are really good. But in a way, that's you're giving your top. I mean, you're saying that Sergio Leone, if you just go on and look at his, those would be the top. I get that it's not an individual movie, but... You're still recommend that was, I think that was my my thing is somebody mm-hmm. who's listening or coming into spaghetti westerns. It wasn't about what you favored, but if somebody came in and said, "Hey, what's what's a good movie for me to start out in?" 
you know, obviously you just said it, anything with Sergio Leone is really the one of the places to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're wondering who we're talking to, we're talking to Tom Betts. Um, he is all over Facebook. He's a follower and, and just a good person. Uh, we connected on my Cochise County Travels uh, Facebook page, and he does listen to my podcast and he does critique them. You can find uh, uh, Tom and what he's got going at Western. How do you say that? Western, Western Saliatana. Just like it sounds. Look, Western Saliatana dot blogspot.com. I'll spell it. It's W-E-S-T-E-R-N-S-A-L-L-I-T-A-L-I-N-A dot blogspot.com. And that is everything Tom. And it's it's a really great website. It's basically pretty much everything that we're speaking about and talking about with pictures and links is on this. I also found out a little... I don't, you may not, you're probably not attached to it, but another spot that if you're looking for about spaghetti westerns, it's spaghettiwestern.net. And it's spaghetti-western.net. And that's another one that'll give you some information about the spaghetti westerns. I want to ask there's you about another, There's another one I'll, I'll plug yeah. called Spaghetti Westerns Database. Oh. And it's out of Germany and it covers all the films. I do the obituaries there on that one called, uh, what are we, what are we I'm trying to think what we call it? Cemetery with Crosses, because there's a movie called Cemetery Without Crosses. Oh, wow. We call it Cemetery with Crosses, yeah. And what was that website again? Uh, Spaghetti Westerns Database, Spaghetti. SWDB. Western Database. Learn something new every day. Tom's teaching me every day. The actors that got involved in the Spaghetti Westerns, Clint Eastwood, obviously. I, I got to tell you, anything with v Lang, uh, uh, Lee Van Cleef. Mm-hmm. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about Lee Van Cleef because he, when he's got that hat on down low, and he's in, dressed up, like, that dude's a badass. Like, just looking yep. at him, he's a badass. Yep. And then... I, I go I go back to Lee Van Cleef with Beast from 40,000 Fathoms as a kid. Um, I was staying with my sister at my grandmother's because my folks were on vacation. And she said, let's go to the theater. What do you want to see? So we're scouring through the... Toledo Blade, we've called, we always love monster movies when you're a kid. Gotta see this, gotta see this. So we went to see it. And if you're, have you ever seen it, Mike? What's that? Beast from 40,000 Fathoms, like a giant reptile. Yeah, I saw like, it once. Like, I haven't seen it. Catch him at the amusement park at the very end. No, I, I have forgotten Okay, about it. anyways, they're gonna kill him with this isotrope. And they need a marksman, so they bring in this marksman and it's Lee Van Cleef. And he said, and the guy says, do you know how to use this? He says, I can pick my teeth with this. I, I go, oh, what a cool guy. <laughs> what a cool guy. I didn't know who he was, but I said, this is great. So I followed him from way back then. And when they made for a few dollars more, and it says, if death needs a double, and the man in black is waiting, and they show Lee Van Cleef, I'm going, oh, my God, this is going to be fantastic. And I thought he was going to play the bad guy, you know. And then when he shows up and he's an equal to Clint Eastwood as a bounty hunter, I'm going, this is yes. going to be great. And I so wish that they had made uh, you know more films together, um, but yeah, he he was uh, the essence of cool and badass, like you said. There's a scene in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly in the very beginning when he rides over to the Stevens Ranch, mm-hmm. and he gets off of that horse, mm-hmm. and he had been in an automobile accident in the late fifties, and had ruined his leg, and he was in the hospital for three or four months, and they said, "You'll never ride a horse again." And he went, he did, he, but when he got off the horse, he was stiff-legged, but it would look like a prince getting off the horse. And they would give him circus horses over there. That's why they prance like that, because they were easier to ride. And so he would ride any of the close scenes, but he would have doubles that would do the long-distance scenes or the very hard-riding scenes. But, yeah, he stayed over there, and to me, he was the uh, the face of the American actor 
in spaghetti westerns. Clint came back after the three, but Lee stayed and was a big name over there for, you know, a dozen years. Crazy. I mean, he yeah. just looks so damn good. Um, Eli Wallach. Tell us about Eli Wallach. Well, I, I don't know how they got him talked into going over there, uh, unless it was just the success of the genre. And he figured, well, this is going to be the third one. The first two were so, so big. I'm going to take the role. And Leone just turned him loose because, I, to me, he should have gotten an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. He just owns that film, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Mm -hmm. And uh, he talked Henry Fonda into going over to make Once Upon a Time in the West because Henry Fonda goes, oh, I don't know if I want to make a, uh, you know, a, a, an Italian Western. This is going to be a mark on my career. And uh, Eli said, no, no, you'll love Sergio. Just go over there and do it. And he went over and made that one, and he came back and made My Name is Nobody with Sergio Leone. So he must have had a good time, and he loved being the bad guy, where he was always known over here as the good guy. But Eli made three or four spaghetti westerns over there other than, uh, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So he must have loved the experience also. Something else. I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to ask you if this is a spaghetti western. Mm -hmm. uh, Once upon a time in the West. Sure. So it was it was produced partially produced by Paramount, and but it was made in Spain. And again, uh, they had you know Italian director, screenwriter, all the screenwriting, and I think do behind the scenes was uh, all Italians and Spaniards. Just the money came from partially in the United States. The reason I ask about the movie is I was going through stuff in, in preparing to interview because I knew you were going to be a, a, a ton of information. It rated that film, YouTube, on YouTube, mm -hmm. as the number one opening scene, like the best opening scene of any movie, where mm -hmm. Charles Bronson is on one side of the tracks on a and a you know baggage area of a train depot, mm -hmm. and I, I don't know all the actors, but but Jack Elam. Yep. Do you agree with Grace that? Road. Do you agree? Because it's an insane beginning where he's playing the harmonica. He's got his arm in a sling. Like go through that. Well, the story I heard was more Coney went to a concert, and. It was the second act. This guy came out with a ladder and just started making noises with the ladder. They thought it was a crew member adjusting the lights or something, but that was his act, just noise. And Morricone got the idea that they could do that in a movie just using natural sound. And that's why there's nothing, no, there's no dialogue. The only dialogue in that whole thing is, is Elam going shh to the station master until the, the train pulls away and they see Bronson over there, you know. So everything in the beginning is just noise. The clattering of the uh, windmill, the dripping of the water on uh, Woody's uh, hat, Al Mullock's cracking his, his knuckles over there and putting his hand through the water in the water trough, Elam sitting there with a fly buzzing around his head and then putting it in the barrel of his gun and listening to it through the barrel, uh, the telegraph going off, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, so that was Morricone's idea, and Sergio jumped on it. And then, of course, that opening line was, uh, did you bring a horse for me? And they said, uh, Elon goes, <laughs> he smiles and says, looks like we're shy one horse. And Bronson goes, uh-uh, you brought two too many. I go, oh, what a, what a great line, you know. And then they have the, uh, the, gun, the gun fight right there. Well, then, the, because it makes sense, because at the end of the gunfight, the camera looks at the windmill, and all you hear is the windmill running, turning. Yep. Phenomenal. Yep. <laughs> it's just it's crazy. I, I got, like, a ton of questions for you. In, um, 
in the Clint Eastwood movie where they they at the end they paint the, they paint the town red. Um, oh, uh, High Plains Drifter. High, Plains, High Plains Drifter. Thank you. I got questions. I don't have anything written down. High Plains okay. Drifter, and they paint the town red. Another amazing actor is, is in that. He's killed at the end. I can't think of his name. He's standing in front of me there. Um, he played the Darlings um, in town of Mayberry. Um, Jeffrey Jeffrey Lewis is he the older the oldest of the two cowboys? Oh no no the oldest of the of the cowboys. There's uh, Dan Battis, who uh, he was he made spaghetti westerns. Jeffrey Lewis is the one who screams, "Who are you?" Yes. Yeah, Jeffrey you? Lewis. He made a spaghetti western. But the premise of that movie, like it was, was it the biggest budget of all of them? Because there was a lot going on. Like there was a lot going on in that movie. Mm-hmm. Was it a high? Was it considered one of the higher budgeted? Was it one of the even though fistful of dollars? Um, or or well, it, that's, I, I don't consider that a, a, a spaghetti western. It was don't. made by Malpaso, which is. Eastwood's company made here in the states, but by Mono Lake. Right. So, but I mean, they, but that's the other thing. I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of people call spaghetti westerns, and they're not spaghetti westerns. They have that look, uh, but they're really they weren't made in Spain or Italy. They have nothing to do with Spanish or Italian actors, directors, producers, writers, whatever. They've just like you were saying earlier. They try to copy that style. Well, that was going to be my point because the movie was made in Mono Lake, near Mono Lake, mm-hmm. in the town of Bodie. And yep. in my head, it it looks like a spaghetti western, mm-hmm. yet it's filmed in America. And that was going to be my question is, how did that go over? You know, like Eastwood obviously got paid a crap more more money, I'm sure. You know, and how did that end up being not made in Italy, and yet it was considered a spaghetti western? So you you answered my question. Well, yeah, I think by that time too, the the craze was over in in, in Italy. The, what happened over there was in 1970 there was a movie called They Call Me Trinity with Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer, and it was a comedy, and it was the highest ranking. I still think it's one of the top two grossing Italian films of all time, not just western films and everything after that they copied because the Italians are great at copying success they made a ton of comedy westerns and for me that ruined it whenever you start parodying a genre it shows like it's over you just can't recover from that and that's why it it has a downslide you mentioned 1978 and there were about three or four hardcore spaghetti westerns made at that time and they were successful, but it never jump-started the Spaghetti Westerns again. So they started making them again, like in the States, and they, they copied that look. And like you said, High Plains Drifter is a copy. The guy that plays the sheriff, Walter Barnes, he was in the Winnetour German Westerns and Italian Westerns, and then he made the Clint Eastwood West films. So he's a link to that, too. Wow. I've asked this question before. I'm not going to ask it of you. I'm going to phrase it differently. I've asked the question at the end of my podcast about the time machine. Yep. Not going to ask it here. (laughs) Instead, I'm going to rephrase it. If Tom could go and work on any Spaghetti Western... That's already been done. Which one would you go to and why? Probably like what you said, Once Upon a Time in the West. Really? Um, even though Clint isn't in it, and Clint's probably my favorite actor, um, I love that movie. Um, when I first saw it, I didn't really care for it because it's very, very slow. You have to look at it like this is a homage to the Western genre. There's all kinds of scenes that Leone uh, put in there that are taken from American Westerns. The railroad tracks, uh, the home, 
there's the part of the little kid like Shane in the beginning out hunting for quail. I mean, it's it's an homage to the Western. And I would think that Leone was at his peak. And uh, I would have loved to have been part of that just to see how it was made, um, all the people involved in it. Uh, the more and more I see it, the more and more I love it. But you have to look at it as an homage and you have to look at it sort of like an art scene. And it's got my favorite uh, musical score of all time. To this day, every time I hear that opening theme, the hair on the back of my neck goes up. Have you traveled to Italy? Not to Italy. I've been to Spain twice. I was going to ask, have you been to Spain or Italy in that area to see the filming locations? Are they still there? Most of them. Uh, I went there in 2003 and again in 2005. I had a friend of mine who's passed away now that was going to write a book on all the locations of the Leone films and donate the proceeds to the actor's home in Woodland Hills. Hmm. And they went over there, he and his wife, and they knew it was going to take more than one visit. So they actually bought a condo over there in a place called San Jose. And San Jose is the town where the opening, where they, they call the little house in Fistful of Dollars where they kept Marisol. And it's the opening two houses in Fistful of Dollars where he's at the well, Clint's at the well. Hmm. That's still there as a hotel now. Anyways, they bought a condo, and when they weren't there, they rented it out. There was a British couple that they knew there that would take care of the rentals. And so they had gone over there so many times that they gave me all their air, mi air miles. And so I went over there and spent 200 bucks the whole time I was there. Wow. And we were there for two weeks. Uh, landed in Madrid, went through all the locations that were in Northern California, went down to Almeria, stayed at their condo in San Jose and hit all their locations in the south. And then in 2005, I went over with another friend of mine, uh, paid for it this time, and stayed at Don's, and we did the same thing again. And it was, a, it was I mean, I'm, they used to call uh, these pictures that they would take Tom's butt shots because I would jump out of the car and go running up to the scenes because I had seen them so many times, and their pictures were always the back of me. But it was like being on holy ground for me. I'd seen these things in films for so long. Uh, and then to actually see them. And they used real towns in there. Those aren't sets. Those are real villages. They used sets uh, like El Paso, which is a, a theme park called uh, Oasis, or Mini Hollywood today, and another one called uh, Texas Hollywood, or Fort Bravo, which is still existence. They still do films there. And then Rancho Leone was the big house in for uh, once upon a time in the West. And they've actually added buildings around it, made it a town, which is, to me, they've ruined it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, they, yeah, they're all there. Uh, the problem is, Mike, because of technology now, you go to some of those towns and there's uh, windmill, windmill, wind farms, and solar panels all over the place. And so you don't get the same view that you did in, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. But yeah, there's most of the locations are still there. Crazy. Yep. Well, we're talking to Tom Betts. You can find Tom uh, at westernsaliatana.blogspot.com. Uh, Western, you know how to spell. Saliatana is S-A-L-L-I-T-A-L-I-A-N-A.blogspot. Com. I urge you to go to his website and see what's going on. Now you have a, you do a podcast as well, correct? Yeah, we do a podcast. Myself and Jay Jennings called uh, Spaghetti Western Podcast. Where do we find that? It's on Facebook. It's also on YouTube. On YouTube and Facebook. Yep. He's got yeah. on several other uh, multimedia's, but I have no idea what they are. I never go to them. But you're out. You do one on every Saturday, correct? Or yeah, we've, we're on uh, hiatus right now. We've taken a couple t uh, weeks off. But the problem, we should have done this 10 years ago, Mike, because it's hard to find anybody to interview because they've all passed away. Uh, I'm not dead yet. So basically so. cover the films and, you know, go over who these actors are yeah. and were and, and things like that. But, yeah. Well, that's why we wanted to get you on, <clears throat> you know, 
My thought is maybe we can come back, you and I, mm-hmm. and break down a movie. Sure. And then, you know, it doesn't have to be an hour long if it only takes 30 minutes or so, but break down a movie and get out all this knowledge that's in your head out before life inevitably takes you both. Well, yeah, that's exactly why we're doing the podcast. We figured someone's got to put this stuff down and get it recorded before these people pass away. Right. And the story goes untold, you know. Yep. It's for our own benefit because we learn stuff all the time. And when you interview people, it's like when you interview the authors and stuff, you find information that's not written down in the books. How do they find this information? What's their research uh, criteria. Right. Who did they talk to? You know, all the stuff that they find out that you would never find in a book, even though you read the footnotes and, you know, the acknowledgements in the back, how, you know, how they run into these people. Right. It's amazing to me when you, you talk to them, how Peter Brand can get information from Australia and write the detailed books that he writes, where, you hmm. know, John Bosnecker's right there, but Peter Brand's half a world away. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. And the guy's from England, too, you know. Yep, Michael Bell. Yeah, incredible. Well, again, we're talking to Tom Betts. Uh, you can find him everywhere. Um, he's on YouTube. Actually, if you put in you spaghetti Tom Betts Spaghetti Westerns on YouTube, all this stuff will come up, and you can actually see what he looks like. Stunningly handsome. Um, yeah, right. And then you can also find him on his website, Western uh, Saliatana dot blogspot.com um and then like i said he does a podcast um there's links in here on his blog spot that will give you all sorts of information about him and pictures and video and all that stuff and he's just a great guy and i, I can't thank him enough of course the uh tombstone epitaph arizona's longest running newspaper is out there be sure to subscribe at tombstoneepitaph.com and the Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. You want to join that. Um, anything you got before you to go? Anything you want to plug? Can't think of anything. Uh, you know, if anybody wants to contact me, be glad to uh, answer any questions or help them with research or or whatever. Direct uh-huh. them to uh, where they can pick up some of these movies. Well, do you have a do you have an email? Tbets twenty six at yahoo dot com. Tbets. 26, 26 at, at yahoo.com. yahoo.com. Tbets26 at yahoo.com. So that would be the place. If they bother me too much, I just block them. So. Well, it looks like you're <laughs> going looks like to block me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, I had a great time. Uh, can't thank Tom enough. And uh, learning a lot about spaghetti westerns. Go out and enjoy. Make sure you are just be a good person. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. So be a good person. Help some folks out that need some help. And as always, I appreciate you guys a bunch. Have a great day and safe travels, and we'll see you soon.